inconceivable. You give you send a horse. I do not think it means what you think it means. All right. Good morning, evening. Welcome to our podcast live stream, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Um, I'm Shimon, and this is Matthew, and we are the uh, Fairness and Freedom Friends Foundation and uh, co-authors of the book. I do not think that word means what you think it means. A short handbook for misunderstanding. Uh, today, here we're here to talk about um, the concept of UBI, or universal basis income, and the uh, recent proposals by both Joe Biden and Mitt Romney, that's not a joint proposal, they're two separate proposals, for expanding the child tax credit as kind of an idea for like a mini UBI or UBI light. Um, I'm gonna give a quick synopsis of the article, but basically the notion is that um, their plans call to give people a credit, either 3,000 or 4,200, depending on which proposal you follow, per child, which is fully refundable, and they plan to kind of dole it out monthly. And this is kind of as a kind of a bid to uh, end child poverty. Uh, what, one of the things that is interesting is the idea that you have a Republican that's proposing such a thing and a Democrat that's proposing such a thing. So that's always interesting. And uh, Matthew and I were talking about it a little bit, and uh, we figured we'd, uh, we'd go out and live stream it. So uh, welcome. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, and I hope you are enjoying this bizarre and kind of Orwellian moment in time. And I hope you don't have coronavirus. And if you do, I hope it went smoothly. And I hope you recovered quickly. And I hope your kids don't have it. And I hope your kids hope you have enough money for your kids. And uh, I don't know, maybe let's take it from there. <laughs> Why don't you uh, go ahead and um, the UBI, Matthew? For those uh, not necessarily, yeah, I, I think calling this a UBI for kids might be a bit misleading. I mean, the 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 idea of a universal basic income is uh, universal. Um, that it um, there's been a few versions that have been out there. Andrew Yang's is probably the one that got the most um, public, you know, notice, uh, at least in America, I believe Finland and Switzerland flirted with the idea of doing a universal basic in income for all of their citizens. And in a very different way, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia have both experimented with um, giving all their people uh, quite a bit of money, all their citizens uh, every month. Um, so the, the idea of it or the ideal of it, a universal basic income, um, it's an interesting thing because it came out of both the far left, out of people who since the early 20th century have believed that uh, the Industrial Revolution produced such an abundance that most of us don't have to work and therefore shouldn't have to work. And we should receive enough money to basically live on and that uh, work would be something you choose to do because it's something you love or you want to make more money than the universal basic income. Um, you know, in theory, in terms of the sheer abundance that our civilization's industry and agriculture produces, it, it, there's no, so to speak, objective, uh, direct reason that we can't do it. It's just an arrangement of how we uh, give everybody uh, money. Um, the way our society works is we do give everybody certain things. We have universal access to things like water, um, to uh, healthcare. I mean, even in America where we don't have universal healthcare, 
everybody is allowed to go to the emergency room and can't be turned away because they can't pay. So in effect, even America has universal health care, even though it's doing it in an extremely inefficient and self-destructive way. Um, but almost all third world countries at this point also have universal health care, at least in name. Um, and from what I saw in Colombia, Thailand, China, in practice, they have universal health care, at least. Universal basic income though is is a little bit more of a revolutionary concept and it's kind of neat because some ideas came from the far right like libertarians in silicon valley since they were planning to basically automate and destroy a whole lot of jobs they were saying well if nobody has jobs nobody will be able to buy our products and 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 therefore that won't make a whole lot of sense so if we're making you know billions and billions of dollars if you can picture every company in silicon valley actually becoming as prosperous as amazon facebook and google are they were looking at making billions and billions of dollars while most people's jobs become redundant or, or irrelevant. I mean, if you have truck, just trucking alone, Andrew Yang focused on, uh, if, if, car, if trucks became self-driving, five million jobs would be destroyed. Um, so the idea of universal basic income is that if everybody gets a certain basic stipend that's enough to live on, and that there has to be a couple other things in sort of general policy to make sure that you're perverse incentives don't happen and the cost of everything just goes up by the equivalent amount. Like if every, every landlord raises rent by the same exact amount as the UBI, then it's just a, a subsidy for landlords. So you wouldn't want that. But as long as a couple basic things are around to make sure that that doesn't happen, then there's a huge amount of, of, of risk taking that people are willing to take if they know they have their basics covered. There's a, a, a sort of decision-making quality that improves arguably pretty dramatically. If you don't have to be super stressed about your most basics, then you, you have the ability to think and plan further ahead. Um, you're not living every day with the stress that one small emergency can wreck your finances, which I gather at least half of Americans and as much as 90% of Israelis live with. Um, in America, like one small, you know, traffic ticket or medical emergency or whatever can completely wipe out all of your discretionary spending for, for, for months or years um, for an awful lot of Americans who are on the bottom half or two thirds of the income curve. Um, so the idea of UBI is by raising that, it also flips around a lot of the wage um, pressures that there's a, there's a sort of coercive element to low wage jobs that like, oh, you have to work or you will be on the street. So if, it, if the UBI is guaranteeing that you won't be on the street if you don't work, then people who offer low wage jobs may have to raise the wages. They may not. People who offer high-end jobs may be able to lower wages, or they may not. It will completely change some of those dynamics. Desirable jobs will be ones that people will be willing to do for less money because they have their basics covered. And shitty jobs, literally or figuratively, um, may become a higher wage um, because like, hey, you know, if if, uh, if I don't have to work a, a minimum wage job at McDonald's, then I won't. And all of a sudden, McDonald's will have to raise its wages just to compete on the market. Whereas a construction job that's actually, certain kinds of construction jobs are actually super fulfilling. Uh, I, I've been working one recently. Um, I don't know how, how, uh, how political it is to be uh, 
uh, involved in any construction in anywhere in Israel, but I'm involved in a construction job in Israel that I consider worthwhile. And even though the pay is not great, I consider it intrinsically worthwhile to be uh, moving rocks, to be building something that I'm proud of. So um, upward pressure on wages at the low end would be potentially one of the profound impacts of a UBI. So that's a general UBI. What's proposed in this article is a, quote, child UBI. And my the red flags of it started right in the sort of subtitle, which said, all this money will be given to the parent of the kids. And it was like, well, wait a second. Are you giving money to the kids? Are you giving money to the parents? I mean, I've heard throughout my life, I've heard all sorts of interesting things where people will foster children just so they get the money and they treat the children like shit. Or, you know, going back to the beginning of the war on poverty, um, there were warnings from a lot of people actually across the spectrum at that time, including Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a big liberal sem- senator at the time, that um, creating this... Uh, the wrong set of incentives around helping, um, you know, parents with dependent children might actually incentivize single motherhood and uh, create uh, a real breakdown of the family. Um, you know, not the policy by itself, but it, it contributed. It was definitely one of the contributing factors to a pretty massive breakdown in the nuclear family structure throughout, you know, from the sixties up until today. So, so these are, I don't know if that sort of laid it out cleanly enough, but a UBI for children isn't a UBI. It's something sure. different. So we can talk about it without that branding, hopefully. Well, I think that, I mean, before we jump into kind of UBI for children and, and kind of the, 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 the kind of the thoughts portrayed in the article and by the plans, I do want to have a kind of a conversation back and forth, maybe a little bit about UBI itself uh, in its kind of pure and ideal form as you kind of laid it out. And I mean, the basic, just kind of to play devil's advocate for a moment, there's a couple of avenues in which where people have concerns about UBI. And I think it's important to just kind of give those voice and people to think about. Um, so one is you kind of clued into was the idea of inflation, right? If you all of a sudden start to um, start to hand everybody a whatever size amount of money, um, Kind of mandated by the government that may just cause prices to go up across everything right like you said landlords rents yes it's, it's you can't really mandate it's been proven over and over and over again you can't really mandate an end to inflation like that's just when you try to do that markets find a way you end up with black markets and things just are you know go look at any country that's had rampant runaway inflation where they've tried to just end it by fiat it just doesn't work um, and so I don't know, but the thing is that we, we are standing at an interesting moment in time where in a lot of instances, the supply, uh, of goods is not necessarily limited. And so inflation happens, right? When, when you increase demand, but supply remains constant, like that's, that's how you, that's how you're going to get price inflation, right? If supply is limited, right? And so many, many things that we buy today supply is not as limited as in that theory, in that same theoretical context. Although one area where supply is limited would be housing. So you did kind of zero in on that kind of right away um, because it takes a long time to build housing and the world is chronically undersupplied for housing. Um, and we can discuss why that is kind of another time. But 
Um, so inflation is an interesting question, and I, I don't know how that shakes out. And anybody who does think they know how that shakes out is is, is just straight up lying to you. Um, and I think you even kind of discussed that. You're like, you're, I don't know. Does it cause wage inflation at the lower end? Does it cause wage deflation at the higher end? These are interesting questions that I don't think that anybody is well enough equipped to answer them short of kind of doing the, the straight up kind of experiment, actually, actually implementing it. Well, there, uh, there's not zero data. There have been UBI experiments. And some of them are ones right in front of us. Like, uh, you know, everybody knows that if you live in Alaska, you get this sort of uh, Alaska Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, kickback every year. Um, you know, most it's extremely popular. Um, once it was put in place, no matter what kind of government they had in Alaska, they didn't have a chance of repealing it. Um, it helps offset um, because Alaska is the far end of nowhere. Um, cost of, you know, shipping and importing goods there is quite a bit higher. So, you know, most people see it as a sort of natural offset of that high cost. Um, I believe that uh, Norway... So, that, so that's inflation, right? That's just like everybody has an extra thousand dollars in their pocket a year and the costs to live in Alaska just naturally inflate to a thousand dollars a year more so that you're not any further ahead or behind. But I well, think it's... I, a, I, don't, I think, I I think don't my point that, that was a little I don't more... Think it was I don't think it was big enough to have that effect, but I, but I, I mean, I hear you. I, like I said, I don't, it's, 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 it's a fairly small one. It'd be easier to study the, the effect on inflation in a place like Saudi Arabia or Iran, where they genuinely gave it to everybody with the intention of uh, offsetting the cost of living. Um, no, but I, what I wanted to say though, is my point was a little bit more nuanced than that. It wasn't to say, that you can't study what I'm saying is that the model is not reality. So no matter how big of an experiment, even the, if you look at the experiments that, that exist, they've all been relatively limited um, in scope and to kind of implement that across a massive economy like that of the United States uh, all at once would certainly, you know, you'd have to kind of test it in increasingly larger areas. I, and I know there's a city here in California that recently tested it. And I don't, I don't remember the, the results of that. I think it was, um, what's the name of the city? Right. I, I know in Manitoba, they did one also. And I know in Finland, they did a much bigger trial. I do know that because it was such a political hot point, all of these studies have tried to focus on, did it, did it decrease people's willingness to, tr to, to look for work? Right. And that and was the other, the other, one of the next criticisms that I've heard. Right. Least. Well, it's, it, it's a hypothetical criticism. And the evidence seems to show that uh, net, it did not decrease employment. People still continued to search for work. Uh, it removed the perverse incentives where you, if you're receiving certain kinds of unemployment or other kinds of benefits, um, there's these perverse incentives where if you offered a job that makes less than the threshold, it's actually not worth it for you to take the job because you get more money from getting the payment. So having a UBI just removes that perverse incentive, which is a positive feature from a conservative point of view. Um, the UBI seemed to make people take a little bit longer to, or made it possible for them to take longer to find work, but not because they weren't motivated to, it more motivated them to find work they actually wanted to keep for longer rather than just taking the first job that came along. And I've always felt like a labor market works best when 
I mean, from the employer's point of view, even I think a labor market labor market works better when you get people who really want that job instead of people who will just say whatever they want, you know, say whatever they can to get whatever job. I feel like that doesn't serve the employer over the course of time either, you know. Yeah. So I, I think there's a sort of degree of authenticity into those relationships when when any employer can make a free choice to leave their job at any time. I think it it makes a healthier employer employee relationship that's less uh, slavery tinged. Yeah, uh, that's yes, but um, the question then always becomes one of kind of level setting, right? And at what level do you set that UBI, and and what what kind of keeps that level in check over time, right? So, you, and especially when you weigh in this kind of inflation, you end up in a very kind of um, interesting kind of world where it's like, well, so if prices start to rise rapidly because it, it kind of offsets the UBI, now do you turn around and increase the UBI? And then is that, is that, how does that cycle end and where does it continue? And what's the right level, right? You know, this, this notion of at some point, in the, at some point, right. We live in a world that has increasing technological advances and producing those technological advances does require some level of uh, investment of capital, uh, human capital, and and actual you know money capital, um, uh, and the question is how how do you continue that moving forward um, and make the people as it were like the notion of UBI is that oh there's all these people at the bottom who are going to be completely phased out of work which I understand is a, is a huge concern and, and is going to be a problem that the world is going to face and we need to figure out how to address this. But at the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, like you're not going to be able to mandate away inequality because if you just say, if you go the kind of the full bore socialist route, right, you end up with a system where nobody's incentivized to do anything of, of positive kind of direction. And then the world just stagnates. So we may be able, may be able to feed, feed people, but, and to keep people in kind of the, the the modern luxury of the of the United States, kind of the way the availability of goods, et cetera. Like, if you completely disincentivize work, there's a lot of things that haven't yet been automated, and so it, it's a delicate balance at the minimum. And, yeah, and, I have not seen that wealth disincentivizes people. The people I know who are wealthy enough to never work again are still working really hard. I don't know that it, it feels like a sort of conservative boogeyman to say that if you give people enough money, they'll be disincentivized to work or to innovate or have any ambition. I think most people have ambition and don't like coercion. And uh, if you had access to more capital, just because you're getting $1,200 a month doesn't mean you don't want an iPhone and don't want the newest Xbox games, and don't want a ticket to the uh, Los Angeles the Dodgers game. So that was my, that's exactly my question, right? So my question is then, why doesn't UBI cover the iPhone and the ticket to the Dodger game and all those other things? Like, what's, you know, like, where, 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 where do you set the level of, hey, this is the level of income, this is the level of effectively consumption that we're guaranteeing to the populace, Right. Anything above that is extra. I mean, this is one of the things that when I think about and hear the debate about, quote, income inequality, I think it's a completely disingenuous argument and discussion. I, I think it's quite frankly BS. 
because people should not care um, how rich the rich people are. It's really a matter of how well is your baseline population doing? And looking at that on relative terms is irrelevant. Like, why do I care that Jeff well, Bezos has $4 trillion, which he doesn't, but, you know, you know, he's the richest man in the world. Why do I care? What I care about as, 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 a, as a person is how well is the average American doing and how do we uh, propel those that are struggling forward? And taking all the money from Jeff Bezos isn't going to solve that problem, right? Uh, however, well, that's the, I don't know if it will. He, he has a lot of money. It might solve some of it, but that's it, not no, the no, point. No. The, 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 the federal budget today, right, is like $4 trillion, right? right? Jeff Bezos has right. like $200 billion. Okay. That's right. like, that's like, that's 20 times the, the, the annual expenditures of the U.S. government is 20 times Jeff Bezos's net worth. So if you took all of Jeff right. Bezos's money and decided to kind of, I mean, and these UBI, like in the article, it talks about how like a full UBI, depending on what level you set it at to start with, is going to cost between one and two and a half trillion dollars. So that would, again, somewhere between five and 15 times Jeff, Jeff or sorry, 12 and a half times Jeff Bezos's net worth. And there aren't that I, many I've Jeff Bezoses. Lower, I've seen lower estimates, but but point taken. I mean, look, if it was, let's just say $1,000 a year, 300 million Americans is, is, is um, you know, a billion is just a thousand trillion. So a thousand dollars a year per, per, per American would be 300 billion. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you want to make it a thousand dollars a month for the whole year, it's more like 1.5 trillion, something like, or 1.8 trillion, something like that. Anyway, um, there's ways to do it, but the, the point is more, well, actually this child UBI kind of backs us into it because social security is sort of like, it's a lot like a UBI for anyone over 65. And the, the child UBI that's being proposed, I, I hate calling it a UBI again, but it's sort of saying that anyone up until age 18 and then anyone above the age of 65, because we still have Social Security, gets regular income supports from the government. Um, giving it to children, I, look, there's a noble goal to say that children should never be living in, in um, dire poverty, and I think there's also underlying this a little bit of a conservative goal. And Joe Biden is a Catholic, remember, that says that nobody should be disincentivized from giving birth to a child because they're afraid that they can't afford to raise the child, which is, I'm sure, a, a major you know issue on the minds of most would-be mothers in America who are in the bottom two-thirds of the American income brackets. It's like, if I have a kid, that's going to be a lot of money out of pocket for the next 18 to 50 years, um, you know? So, uh, I, 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 you know, there, this, this sort of raises also the issue of like, do we want people that be having kids? Do, are we willing to support people who are having kids out of wedlock, which used to be uh, the politically correct thing to say was that it was totally wildly inappropriate for anyone to have a child out of wedlock. Now it's completely politically inappropriate to say, how dare anyone question someone's right to have a child out of wedlock, right? 
what does that even mean out of wedlock? That term is even antiquated. It's like any single mother can choose to have a child by, uh, you know, mother by choice and sperm donation and whatever. And I'm not saying any of these are bad things in and of themselves, but like this sort of child tax credit for the entire life of the child, it presumes a hell of a lot of good intentions on the, on the part of the parents. And, you know, I am not one to either assume that parents are good or they're going to use that money for their children or that parents are bad and that government should step in and determine whether they're being good parents. Both of those seem like horrible. I, I, I mean, I don't know that there's anything we could do about the fact that there's bad parents in the world, but um, the government intervening doesn't usually work out very well either in families. Or anywhere in my opinion, but hey. <laughs> I know you don't actually believe that. I, I know that you believe that there should be governments who support, you know, contract enforcement and stuff like that. Otherwise, we wouldn't really have a functioning society. Well, there's a difference between government supporting contract uh, enforcement and a and the government getting involved in incentivizing specific behaviors. And that's the difference between whether you are saying that there are kind of rules rules to the road, right? And we're going to make sure that people follow those rules to the road and provide a system for which under which people can follow the rules of the road and create consequences for not following the rules of the road versus actively writing the rule book as you go, kind of, you know, and, th and those are the differences, right? You know, and, and this is where, this is where my kind of my libertarian meets my anarchist and, um, and kind of, kind of feels like they're, they're, I wish that we didn't need kind of rules to the road and a government to, to do uh, to do things, but I also am more of a realist, so I reckon pragmatist, so I recognize that, that that's not really realistic at large scale because there are bad people that will do bad things, and you know you do need to kind of figure out how to stop that. Uh, I do want to take a step back uh, and just kind of a just a math simple math function: twelve thousand dollars, assuming three hundred million Americans is three point six trillion dollars a year. Okay. Just so we're just we just we're not we're we're making sure we're speaking in the right kind of order of magnitude, um, so like so, so that would be the cost of just of just providing everybody that universal basic income of twelve thousand dollars. Now, will that offset? Um, one of the more interesting kind of uh, plans I've read about UBI and and one of the the only kind of way under which I support it is if it's a, what I would call it administered properly, and that would be to um, completely phase out all other welfare transfer payments, essentially. Um, right. That was the other best argument I saw for it is that because there is a tremendous amount of proving yourself to get it, you know, like whether it's food stamps or um, corporate subsidies or farm supports, there's a tremendous amount of government bureaucracy that goes into checking claims and, implementing and then following up and making sure there wasn't fraud. And it's like a UBI. There's no bureaucracy. It's as simple as social security. They have your name, they have your social security number, you get a check. There's no reason to, there's no incentives up or down to, 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 to screw with the system. And you could throw away not only the costs of all of the aid for dependent families and corporate welfare and everything like that. You can also, um, 
you, you can also throw away the bureaucracy, you know, the, the costs of maintaining a bureaucracy and box checkers to make sure and follow up and means test and all those other things because it becomes irrelevant. So you'd save a lot of money. And then there's also downstream costs you'd save on mental health and other kinds of health that improve when you know when you know that you don't have a level of desperation, certain kinds of crime allegedly go down. Um because you're not struggling to make rent. Um, there's certainly arguments also to pair this with uh, decriminalization of a lot of drugs. Um, there's arguments to pair this with um, removing a lot of zoning so that enough housing could be built um, to, to increase the supply of that until it met the level of most people's uh, incomes. Um, there's a lot of things that you can do but maybe that's getting into the weeds, like you said, of um, what are the sort of perverse incentives or moral hazards of, of offering this sort of thing. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, okay, so just one, and this is kind of to take you back to where you were a few minutes ago as far as kind of how they find that people, there's there's not much evidence you said, I think you said, and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, that there's not much evidence that people, that, that providing people with a way out of poverty or guaranteed income is is gonna gonna promote uh, bad behavior or dependency, and I mean, it, is that a correct did I did I correctly characterize what you were saying before? Uh, yeah, that's fair. Um, and so, one of the things that I that I've seen a number of times are there's a there's a strong positive correlation between kind of welfare being recipients of, of certain amounts of welfare and opioid addiction, for example. And so, and now I don't know that there, that there's a causal relationship between that or not. Obviously there's a conservative talking point that says that there is a causal kind of relationship there, but I don't know the answer to that. And that's really going to come down to, you know, massive testing at scale and finding the right level um, to find out if that's, if that's the case. I mean, in theory, I do believe, it's not even theory, I do believe that the world is heading for a, a place where we just need less and less people. And I, unfortunately, I think that it's a lot of, I think it's a lot of liberal policies that are, that are, that are pushing that, um, like here towards in the state less of people. towards less people needed, less jobs, less employment necessary. Mm. Meaning, because the higher you hike something like minimum wage, the faster you are pushing companies to automate positions. Oh yeah. So, okay. So I mean, I I'll just that. you know, you know, the company that I work for employs quite a few people, and as minimum wage goes up, we think harder and harder about every person that we hire and justifying every person that's there, and it's led us into a a the, just the, we're we're like three five years ago we didn't even think about automating processes and eliminating people because labor was you know, what seemed to be a reasonable price. We didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but as we watched California kind of statewide mandate a hike of minimum wage by close to 50%, right? Um, we're starting to, we started to look at it and go, well, you know, at $10 an hour, maybe it was a no-brainer to employ that person to scan documents into, a, into, the, into the system. But at $15 an hour, maybe I can figure out a way to do that cheaper, if that makes sense, from a business perspective. It does. It's, so, it's math. Yeah, it's exactly it's math, and it's not. Um, it's not. 
that and so I don't know like I don't know how, how do you how do you kind of find your way out of that cycle but regardless of that specifically so I'm that was just an example of how I think that specific liberal policies are you know the, the minimum wage is kind of pushing this this amplification of minimum wage is pushing us further and faster into this future where people there's not enough like meaningful work value add meaningful work that needs to be done by people which is going to displace a lot of people from the workforce and those people are going to be stuck and i and yeah. therefore therefore yeah. i believe that that the concept of ubi is at some point has merit and is going to be is going to kind of need to be a reality because there are you know, I don't know seven billion people on the planet and you know there's a couple you know eric weinstein wrote an excellent article on this all the way back in 2016 and Something about anthropic capitalism, where he talks about this idea that there's just many, many jobs are just going to be automated. Like you mentioned, truckers before. All these things is just again, what do all those people do? And so I think that it is important. Like we are going to have to, as a society, figure out how to kind of navigate that pitfall because because not navigating it doesn't lead in positive directions whatsoever. Um, and it's just a question well, of how and what are the right parameters. And I have fair, I have high level of confidence the government will mess it up. So yeah, I, I mean, look, you know, governments get stuff right sometimes, and there's an entitlement effect where the, anything the government gets right, we almost immediately take for granted, and anything the government gets wrong, we could bitch about for years or decades. Um, you know, the government has done a lot right. Um, you know, like even this recent Texas um, uh, weather disaster. Um, we could be telling the story that like, hey, look, the other 49 states have administrated their power and uh, their power grids and their weather preparedness so that this sort of thing probably wouldn't happen in just about any other state. Well, it happened in California over the summer. Uh, not to the degree of this Texas thing. And, and it, was California pretty, it was pretty extreme in California in the summer. There was a lot of there was a lot of people out of power for, for periods of time. Maybe not as extreme, but also I, I would argue that cold weather is a lot, A, more dangerous uh, and B, more difficult, more arduous than hot weather. So in California, we suffer from hot weather that caused this and fire season. Um, but sure, but, sure. Uh, so so if, if you would have if you just took the, the current weather event that's happening in Texas and pushed it into California, I think you'd have the exact same problem. Actually, probably worse because of because Texas is renewable direction has been wind and California is solar. And so if you put a massive unprecedented ice storm on the state of California, A, nobody's prepared for it, right? We'd all, we'd all just die because A, we don't have the winter clothing necessary to kind of survive in the cold without heat. Uh, many houses don't have the level of heat, you know, just installed just because it's a non-reality in our world. And, um, and you'd lose the sun which produces a good portion of our electric grid. And I mean, it's these, both of these tales, both Texas and California are cautionary tales on changing systems dramatically. Because one thing that California and Texas have in common that many people don't know about, and you and I discussed this briefly previously, is they both have a large proportion of their grid that are, that is supplied by quote unquote renewable energy. In California, in California, it's solar. I don't remember the number. It's twenty plus percent, um, twenty plus percent of uh, of the energy comes from solar. And in Texas, it's wind. Twenty five percent of 
Texas electricity, from what I read the other day, uh, comes from wind power. And all of a sudden, those wind turbines are freezing. And that's why they're having massive power issues. And so, yes, if they were interconnected with the rest of the country, might other country, might other states surrounding them be able to help feed their grid? Yes, but would it be enough? I mean, come on. I mean, Texas is one of the most populous states in the country. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but what you were saying a little before about the... Um, th there's a trend for sure in the world that's not just about liberals in, a, in the West. It, it's, it's about the, the, the whole trend of the Industrial Revolution is, is for automation to gradually uh, replace an awful lot of the functions that humans do um, that, uh, you know, de facto, most of us from the simplest exchange economies to, uh, you know, to high finance and global supply chains and wall street, that there's still, you know, every day people get up and go to work and whether they're moving numbers around or moving concrete bags or moving, um, you know, fertilizer onto plants, there's, there's a humans doing things. Um, generally mediated through the exchange of money that, that creates this sort of circular flow that, that we all kind of um, live on and in. Um, automation is accelerated sometimes by something like a minimum wage, but it's probably inevitable anyway, because there's plenty of profit motive to figure out ways to automate things, whether or not um, there's a specific threshold. I mean, if somebody doing a particular task is worth hiring them at seven fifty an hour, but when it hits fifteen dollars an hour, uh, it becomes worth it for you to get a machine that's going to do that. Well, the people who are trying to make the machine, they didn't specifically make the machine in mind because they knew exactly what the minimum wage is and would be for the rest of their ten-year you know profit projections. They're trying to make the best machine that they can. And at some point, their incentive is to make a machine that makes it worth it to even throw your $7.50 minimum wage worker out of work. Um, the, the incentives are still there. They may be stronger or weaker, but the incentives towards automation are, are increasing in our society unless we have some sort of return to the Middle Ages. Oh, I agree with that. I, 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 I definitely agree that the incentive of our society is towards increasing automation. However, at the same time, the slower automation moves, I mean, this is kind of a moot conversation because it is what it is and we live in the world we live in. But what we've seen is, I mean, this is not the first time in history that this, like, that the, quote, end of capitalism has been kind of widely touted as, oh, everything is going to be automated. All of your jobs are going to disappear. But what's happened is, like humanity, we're a very innovative species, right? And so the, the best paying jobs today did not exist even 20 years ago. Like the, the literally, like some of the best paying jobs in the world today did not exist. Did, like nobody even thought or heard of them 20 years ago. Like face, Facebook sure. didn't exist 20 years ago. Google barely existed 20 years ago, right? And so right. At, on the natural pace of automation, it is entirely possible. Now we're, we're, you're purely in the theoretical because who the heck knows and you can't rewrite it and go back. Um, there's no reason why humanity could not have necessarily innovated its way past that. 
right? I mean, I don't know what the next phase is, is VR. Who knows, well, right? Where, where, does, where does technology take us to the point but, but where you, jobs can exist and creativity can flourish even as automation happens? And yes, always in, in everything, there is a, there's a cycle of kind of creative destruction, right? So uh, obviously the guy who's, who was put out of work in a coal plant or in a, or in a, or in a gas pipeline uh, for the kind of the more the current administration isn't going tomorrow to get a job as a developer at Facebook, right? Or the next startup, right? So obviously there's always a cycle where some people are getting hurt while other people are benefiting as things move forward. Uh, my bigger point though was about systems, right? I mean, I just like changing and overhauling a system is a very complex. But, but um, you said one word that's just sort of standing out to me. I agree with a lot of that, especially, yeah, especially, uh, so you said something about meaningful jobs and that to me, like might almost be an oxymoron for most people, like meaningful. What makes a job meaningful? Um, I'm a big fan of David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs. And at the end of that book, he actually does make a specific plea for a UBI um, there's this, there's a lot of perverse incentives up and down our system because our bureaucracies have grown beyond all conceivable measure. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people on the left are, are really horrified by the growth of like, you know, giant multinational companies and then these huge bureaucracies and layers and layers of finance and uh, the, these, self-justifying jobs who take their piece. And then people on the right tend to be horrified by the growth of government bureaucracies. And I'm kind of horrified by both. Um, I don't know if that makes me an anarchist exactly, but I think anarchists are historically mistrusting of large bureaucracies and large concentrations of power, um, whether it's corporate or government. Um, but the biggest hope that I have for UBI, getting back to those sort of incentives, was that like, if you tune it right, potentially it empowers people to find jobs that are meaningful for them. Like the, 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 the classic idea and arguably even the American dream is to have what, what is colloquially known as, as, as fuck you money. It's to have enough money that you could turn down any job and not just turn it down, but turn it down with extreme prejudice, meaning leave the meeting by saying those words. Um, that's a kind of freedom that very few people in the world have. Um, Joe Rogan has it. He's talked about it. And he's talked about how much it freed him to do what he's doing and to continue doing what he's doing, even when there's huge pressures to do it otherwise. And he seems to be winning that game so far. Um, Nassim Nicolab Taleb is, is Nassim Nicholas Taleb is another person who's, who's talked in great detail about how having that amount of money allowed him to start speaking his mind in, in all sorts of ways that uh, would have cost him any future in the finance field if he had, you know, opened his mouth earlier. Um, and I think, I think we're seeing this to the few sort of select people throughout our society, the threshold for having a few money is fairly high. Um, you could argue that Brad Pitt has hit it and he's started being really, um, 
entertainingly rude at a lot of these like awards events and stuff and calling Hollywood out on their bullshit. Bill Murray is also notorious for just not caring about all the conventions and he'll just, he'll wander into some bar and ask if he can bartend for a couple nights and he'll do it. And he won't even ask for them to pay him. He'll just be like, I just wanted to attend bar for a couple of days. There, there's a kind of nobility and freedom to, to sort of being able to not worry about money and not worry about the political implications and the, 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 the potential to your future about what you do. And I think we should hold it as a societal goal that, that, that everyone has that. And I say that also as an entrepreneur, that when I was trying to build my company and I was trying to hire people, in some ways, I, well, for one thing, life would have been a lot easier as an entrepreneur if the wage scale is lower. And everybody, everybody who does a startup winds up asking for people to work for them for free or for slave labor. And sometimes we, um, you know, we're paying ourselves slave wages. I didn't pay myself a salary for 60, 70% of the months that I was doing my startup. But, you know, you get paid in options, you know, stock options or shares or equity or one, one or another form. And the, the higher something like a UBI is, the more people would have been willing to work for me. Uh, again, given that other parameters didn't inflate that difference out of existence. The, 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 the people who had a lot of money were able to do more for me because they had more money, not necessarily invest in my company money, but they certainly had the ability to put a lot more time into it because they didn't have the immediate pressure, the foot on their neck of paying, uh, you know, their, their rent, their health care, their mortgage, their children's school bills, their, um, you know, whatever it was that was sort of keeping their minimum threshold, whatever. And leaving aside, so to speak, luxuries like a fancy iPhone or something, um, there is a threshold that you need in order to just live really simply and buy groceries and live in a house that's reasonably nice enough for you to not lose your mind. And um, I don't know what that threshold is. Some people call it the poverty line, but I've been below it at certain points. And if it's low enough, which I did see in a place like China or Thailand, it, it becomes worth it to take certain kinds of risks. It becomes easier to hire a lot of people. It, it just there's a lot of equations that become different with a much lower or zero minimum wage and also become easier with something resembling a UBI. So I, that's where I see kind of an ideal forming. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. The question that is unresolved and would be very difficult to resolve is for every one person who would go and work for your startup. Right. If they had their basics covered. Are there, are there or are there not 10 people who would sit on their couch and do drugs all day? And if, if the answer is, yes, there are, and I'm not saying there are, right? And this is a question that, that leads back to kind of human nature and it's completely untested. If there are, then it is not, UBI will not be a virtuous cycle. It will be the opposite because it's, it'll just be a continued evolution of desired handouts, a cycle of dependency, right? And that's an if. I'm not saying that that is what it is. I'm saying if that is, if that is, if that is a true representation of human reality, um, which you called the conservative boogeyman earlier, which is fair, who knows? Um, If that is, if that reflects reality, then UBI is just a gateway drug to kind of 
further a downward spiral of society because you know that that behavior uh that cycle of dependency just you just you just keep the level just keeps going up i i agree with that i mean i think it comes back to your word meaningful um i think that a ubi has straight away it has an advantage of not being stigmatized social security is not stigmatized mm-hmm. as far as i know nobody feels like they're they're being some sort of uh you know, pathetic, um, dependent on government handouts, loser for cashing their social security check. Um, as far as I know, just about everybody is happy to cash it. They don't feel like it is impacts their dignity to cash it. It's just part of their life. They cash their social security check. Some of them don't really need it. Some of them really live on it. I met people who were Americans who were retiring to places like I met several in Colombia. In Colombia, you can live on your social security check pretty well. So that was a choice they were making to live well on that income. You don't, you know, you can complain social security is not enough to live where you're living in, uh, I don't know, downtown Los Angeles or somewhere expensive, but then like, okay, well move, you know, that's the, that's the, that this the the answer to the scarcity of real estate is to move to somewhere where it's cheaper, um, which I, I realize is not a perfectly simple e- equation, but it's not it's not an and that's not enough of an excuse to say that it's expensive where I'm living. Um, I, I would my experiences in Colombia and in China gave me a little bit of insight and Thailand even. China is very weird because they. As far as I know, they don't really have anything like a UBI explicitly. They are technically, I mean, they're run by the Chinese Communist Party, but it's an extremely active capitalist society. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of businesses being formed, businesses building export businesses, manufacturing businesses. I'm sure along the way, there's a lot of innovation. It's not necessarily the type of creative innovation that we associate with the West, but there's a lot of innovation happening as far as certainly logistics, supply chains, manufacturing, materials, uh, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of things. Um, Biotech, apparently they innovate quite a bit. Um, They have raised, well, I don't know how to do the... uh, I don't want to do the attribution incorrectly. So I'm going to say that the Chinese Communist Party probably deserves at least a little bit of the credit for the difference in standards of living of at least 800 million Chinese who were, I mean, China was almost universally extremely poor 40 years ago. And now something on the order of 800 million people are at least up to the standards in terms of uh, purchasing power parity of the Western middle classes and the top at least a hundred million, maybe 200 million people are on par with the wealthy of the West. That still leaves something on the order of 600 million people who are the poor of China. And some of them are in the countryside. Some of them were far out of sight of what you could see from the cities where I visited, which was mostly, um, 
primarily Shanghai, also some smaller cities, a couple of small towns, but I didn't go deep into the countryside where there's real poverty. Um, but even within a city like Shanghai, I, I mean, there are millions and millions of people who clearly are working for way below anything conceivable as a minimum wage in the West. Um, I mean, I could order something delivered and the delivery cost would be uh, less than 50 cents. Um, and this person is, their wage can't be a whole hell of a lot higher than, I don't know, $5 an hour or something. But clearly they had built enough housing for there to be places, at least on the outskirts of the city and whatever, that poor people making those wages could be really happy having those jobs, making those wages and buying the things you could buy with those wages. It also seemed to me that they were creating jobs that weren't entirely bullshit. Like it's a very, very modern city with, with high speed trains and the, the fanciest newest airports and the tallest buildings in the world, the fanciest skyscrapers, municipal art, uh, a stunning amount of, I mean, infrastructure that puts Los Angeles and New York to shame. And they still have people sweeping the streets with hand brooms and little rickshaw carts. So it seemed abundantly clear that those were make work jobs, that it was like rather than a minimum, rather than just giving people money as some sort of UBI, we're going to keep wages really low, keep the cost of certain kinds of goods really low, and then give people jobs that do something, not nothing. I don't know how they do the budgets on all of this. I can't pretend to know. I saw similar things in Thailand. Colombia was a whole different thing because it's, well, Colombia and Thailand are not communist, obviously. They're much more similar in a, in a political model to the West. But both of them had, you know, street sweepers and a lot more side-by-side -side wealthy and poor neighborhoods, which I think is something the West has badly, badly misunderstood, that to be really wealthy, if, you, if you're the kind of person who can afford a house that costs $500,000, when I tell someone from China or Colombia or Thailand that, that you know, so-and-so in my family's house, they just, you know, moved from a house that, that they sold for four hundred and ten, and they moved into a new one that was eight thirty, and I say, and they say, well, do they have servants? And I'm like, no, I guess they don't have servants. And they're like, they're doing wealthy really badly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, so just kind of to circle back to the UBI conversation, though, like even, I mean, China, um, they're not willing to make that leap of can will the system support itself or will it create a system of dependency, a cycle of dependency? And, and I don't know, I don't know the, I don't know that anybody can know the answer to that question. And so that, that, that does kind of lean kind of, kind of difficult, you know, and, and this is kind of, this is kind of the point I was making by the grid. It's just about, you know, we talked last time about kind of the three major factors that kind of move the world, which are, you know, moral hazard, perverse incentive, and unintended consequences. Correct. Right? And so, like, unregulated systems kind of should, you know, on some level, should eliminate moral hazard, right? And unintended consequences, I don't know, you know, you can go one way or the other. Perverse incentives should also kind of, should also, 
I'm not going to make, I'm not going to even make that argument. But when you have a system that's in place, that's kind of developed over time, you can look and see what, what those factors are and how they manipulate and how they move the world and try to eliminate moral hazard and perverse incentive without creating too many unintended consequences, I would say is kind of the way to do something. And so overhauling massive systems just to kind of just say, you know, screw it, let's just kind of do the whole thing over, um, I think creates a lot of problems in, for society that are unanswerable and could end up a heck of a lot worse than we have today. And so that's why I tend to be suspect of things. And that's kind of the, the little bit of conservatism that kind of comes that that, that that exists within me because I, and I look at examples such as like the electric grid in Texas or California, where you end up with a system where, you know, at first mm -hmm. everybody's like, Oh, how could it be bad if we make our grid 25% renewable? That should be great. It should be a hundred percent renewable. Right. But well, along comes this thing called unintended consequence. And we find out that in extreme weather events, it becomes very difficult to supply that grid because you can't, you can't um, ramp up supply fast enough to, to, to go in, to go with uh, increased demand or sometimes supply is depressed. If the, if the resource that you're depending on is suddenly scarce. So that that's to me, that's always, all massive systemic overhaul uh, is 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 problematic because I don't think anybody is smart enough to kind of see through all of these things. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, you made me think of like resilience. Like uh, some societies, like Japan and France, which I've at least visited, have. Um, a tendency to ha heat their houses a lot less in the winter than would be comfortable for an American. They just wear sweaters. And when it's really cold, they build a fire and they, they huddle around the fire. Um, they don't presume a level of, you know, continuous 74 degree comfort in all of their indoor spaces at all times. Um, there's, there's a sort of built in kind of, you might say edu cultural education of the people to be a little more resilient when they encounter extreme cold. And they don't presume that the electric grid will work all the time because it didn't when they were growing up and they just, it's like a luxury to them. It's not a necessity. Um, so entitlement effects are a big part of that. Like assuming that there's, you know, going to be cell phone service all the time when you didn't grow up with a cell phone until X age. Um, there's, you know, remembering how to actually uh, um, use Morse code and a ham rate or whatever, you know, like there's resilient systems underneath a lot of these things that we could use. Um, the, uh, the original UBI in America, and I think it was a lot of the debates of early America, and you could argue it continued until at least the first at least the beginning of the 20th century was free land was that if you didn't like the way things were in your, you know, crowded Baltimore slum, you had the right to move out to 
the Northwest Territories, which was Mont which was Ohio initially, and then you know it moved further and further and further west. But there kept being these waves and a huge amount of political pressure around Manifest Destiny was like, hey, every every person should have the right to make their own thing on free land. Free land. So it was a universal basic income in the sense of, or universal basic uh, starting capital would probably be a little more accurate than anyone had the right to go out West and, and stake claim on the staked plains of, of, of West Texas or, or Montana. In 1912 was when they opened up Oklahoma and took the last of the major Indian lands and said, Hey, you can come homestead here too. Um, it's my understanding, even in a few far slices of uh, New Mexico and Montana and Alaska, there's still a few last slices where you can actually technically homestead. You can go out there, claim a bit of land that's probably the least worth, the least, there's a reason it wasn't claimed until now. Let's put it that way. But there's still well, you, a few you places can also, where you can homestead. You can but, also squat on land still. There, is, there are still squatters' rights in this country. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I mean Thomas Jefferson's it doesn't end there. But yeah, there, go ahead. There are plenty of places in this country where land is still ridiculously cheap, um, and besides, even if you can't get it for quote free, uh, there are plenty of places in the country where land is ridiculously cheap. If you wanted to move out and go live on the land, you could do so with a fairly small amount of capital. Uh, nobody wants to, so that's why it's not. It's a, it's a matter of desire, not a matter of kind of ability. I think. Because I don't, I don't think that I think that there's lots and lots of acreage. I, I, you'd be you'd be amazed at how much acreage there is. I mean, I, I once like I was randomly looking at some like land auction sites where you could buy like five hundred thousand acres, you know, in in like Nevada for like a million dollars or something like that. And so like you just think through the kind of like what does that come out to on a per acre basis? It's like it's like ridiculously small. And obviously nobody needs 500,000 acres and it might be a little bit harder to buy two acres, but you know, and it, it's, that's all kind of in the realm of doable. It's a matter of we've, we've grown accustomed to a certain level of um, society that you said that you talked about with a little bit with your resilience kind of point. Uh, and people just don't want um, different. So they want what they want. And that's kind of leads back to kind of the suspicion I have of the UBI concept, right? Because what, how quickly will that level set be the new level? And now we're working up to the next level. And at some point to continue functioning as a society, uh, we need to continue to produce and innovate and people need to be incentivized to do so. And the larger the bill that you are tacking on to less and less labor um, that needs to be supported, um, labor and or capital, the meaning the bill meaning the tax bill to pay for the UBI, um, the larger that number is, right? The 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 the, 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 the you, you like you said you could either have a virtuous cycle like you pointed out before where people are incentivized to go out and create etc. and do all these wonderful things and not have to worry about their basics, but they're like I said there's the opposite potential cycle which would be a downward cycle which is the demand is greater and greater and the and the the people that are producing and the capital that produces um, doesn't grow because it doesn't have the the necessary innovative kind of mental human capital to make it to propel it forward because there's disincentives that are created. And I, I don't 
I don't know the answers to those questions. I really don't. I'm just I'm just posing questions. I do want to take a turn towards the article, if you don't uh -huh. mind. Um, yeah. Because oddly enough, um, I'm somewhat supportive of this plan, depending on how it's funded on the child. But I think that the art, the author maybe tripped you up in calling it UBI or yes. calling it an alternative to UBI rather than initiatives to end childhood, child poverty in this country. Um, sure. And because I, I, I think as a, because as an initiative to end child poverty, I think it makes some sense. Now, you're correct. It does create potential perverse incentives uh, similar to the war on poverty uh, 50 years ago. And those need to be navigated and mitigated. I, I don't really know uh, how to do that. I think it requires a full overhaul of all welfare, of all welfare and transfer payments in this country um, to do it right. Um, yep. I'll never forget um, watching, I think it was, I, think it was some, I don't remember where it was, but it was someplace where it was like, I think it was a single mother in, maybe it was Detroit. If she makes like $12 an hour, right? The, the welfare cliff for her to kind of take that job and move up to the next level in life in advance was like $26. So meaning like in right. order to achieve the same level of consumption that she had between her job that paid her $12 an hour and the and the kind of welfare benefits that she got in order to get one more incremental dollar ahead in life she had to get to a job that made 26 dollars an hour and that that gap between 12 and 26 was just so high that you can't ever cross it so there's just a disincentive to advancement uh, that's created by welfare in a lot of circumstances i think that that needs to be completely overhauled where like and I think you start by overhauling that before you get to like the massive concept of UBI, um, because like there are so many people that are stuck in dead end jobs that that are afraid of a welfare cliff. They don't want to lose their food stamps. They don't want to lose all the benefits that they get from governments because the next kind of and they know this right. The next the fifty cent raise could put them over the top and all of a sudden they lose all these benefits, and that's horrible. Like we need to have a system in this country where if to the extent you have a social safety net. It needs to be incentivizing work rather than de-incentivizing work. And if 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 we could overhaul that system, if the government, I'm not going to say we, if the government could overhaul that system and create those positive incentives, then I would be a lot more trusting as a citizen with them kind of creating incentives, you know, further and kind of go the kind of the whole route to UBI. And so in some ways, there are interesting elements of this kind of notion of this child tax credit. Um, that's fully refundable and pay, that pays out monthly um, to eliminate child poverty and has relatively high phase outs um, makes a lot of sense. No, there's no criteria. It's just everybody gets it who has based on the number of children you have. And that should, that, that should help kind of in that direction. Now, I think it needs to be coupled with, like I said, it's a welfare overhaul um, so that we were not overly like, we're not we're not just massively just adding another kind of program and benefit to the pile and rather we're looking at things a little more systemically yeah i agree with that and, I, and part of the reason i like it is that it's not theoretically it has a much lower overhead than most other kinds of programs like that and i would love to see most of those other programs phased out not only because they're costly and heavy in bureaucratic overhead but also because they're demoralizing and 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 humiliating uh, for the people who receive them, 
like I get that there's a certain tendency. It's most overtly expressed by many conservatives who are like, everyone should work and earn their peace, you know, but I think in a way it's even worse from the liberals who have this sort of patronizing attitude about like, oh, the poor little people, we want to make sure they learn how to have the skills to survive. And it's like both of those are demoralizing and stigmatizing and humiliating. Um, I've been through a phase where I couldn't work. When I burned out at the end of my startup, I was just kind of useless for, for several months at least, maybe a year. And um, I can imagine many circumstances. I can empathize now with many circumstances where people are either traumatized or, or burned out or other circumstances. I don't know, addiction, depression, uh, whatever, where, where you really can't work and you need help. Um, and a UBI would sort of potentially elegantly simplify a lot of that um, rather than sort of, uh, there's no way around having some people be a quote burden on society, at least in a financial sense, whether because they can't work or for some period of time they won't work or because of what you might call mental illness or just simply not finding a good fit between themselves and the economy or because of macro factors or because they're disabled, like physically, they have a logging accident or they're in back pain or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, I could see the UBI going all the way down the road of like making it clear that most jobs are useless, like, and then they'd fire most government bureaucrats because why would we employ these people? They'll get UBI. I feel like the current Congress should be the first people forced to live off of the UBI. That should be the trial. Um, just fire all of them and they can live on $1,200 a month. Just go to the poorest corners of their constituencies. Nancy Pelosi would have a really hard time, I gather. She's in San Francisco. I, I don't think there's anyone in San cream. Francisco you can live for $1,200 a month. I, there's some really good ice cream in San Francisco. Um but, but yeah, I mean, like, th there's perverse incentives to our, according to that bullshit jobs book, there's almost this, <sighs> he did the numbers in like this weird John Maynard Keynes kind of way. John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s predicted that within 20 years, we'd be producing enough surplus so that everybody could work 15 to 20 hours a week and we'd produce way more than enough for us to all have this, this wonderful abundance. And David Graeber went back and looked at the math and he said, well, it's actually true, but we never rearranged our, our economy accordingly. Instead, what we did was we kind of inflated the, a large chunk of that wealth went to certain chunks of the population and uh, regular jobs became having a purchasing power less than what you needed to sort of get to that point. So I actually completely disagree just with what you just said, because how, how common was it in 1930 to have a washing machine in your house, for example, or a clothes dryer, let alone an iPhone? And so what people forget when they, when they analyze this and say, oh, we could have done this or that, or, or, or kind of income has stagnated, et cetera, we have to take into account the massive increase in the level of consumption that we have had as a society. Like 
things that were just were not yes if we would have not if we would have completely ended technological technological advancement and people's desires to consume in the 1930s then by the 1950s we could have produced enough food to to make sure everybody nobody went hungry and everybody was kind of was was kind of self-sufficient but the problem is that people didn't want to just have enough food to eat people want to be able to wash their clothes conveniently and not have to like do it by hand uh, or employ somebody to do it by hand. People wanted to, um, you know, eventually move on to carrying the internet around in their pocket and uh, chat on social media all day um, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the, the level of, I think that our life today kind of, if you went back to a person in the 1930s and you showed them kind of the level of, consumption that we have as people today, um, they'd be amazed. Now, has that made us happier? That's an interesting and excellent question, right? Well, but, but, but back it up. Well, we're certainly I said, wealthy. I, well, I said, Even the poorest people we're, are wealthier we're, today. There's an argument about the, 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 the moving the goalposts there, sure. But he, he addressed part of that. But, but his bigger point was that we definitely have far overshot the ability to actually feed all of us and to provide all of us with basic necessities, food, shelter, housing, basic medicine. And even, I mean, he was factor, he started out with factoring in something. He was looking at more like the fifties when he really did the calculation, John Maynard Keynes, even including a television, which at the time cost proportionately out of your income, at least as much as your iPhone and all that stuff today. So I don't think it's actually changed that much. Um, but, but his bigger point was that rather than um, distribute the wealth in a way that we all could work 15 hours a, a day, we, we most of us have to work a lot to barely make ends meet. And even if those ends are slightly more generous than they were in 1950, arguably they're not. Depends how you measure it. But his bigger point was that a huge amount of the jobs we've created since then are these sort of bureaucratic paper pushing jobs that are actually meaningless arguably as much as 40 to 65% of the jobs in the world today are worse than useless, that they're just, you know, filling intermediate levels of functions that relate to all these other, the other part of our conversation where we do agree is about the perverse incentives and the mismanagement and the barriers to entry and the rentier dynamics, rent seeking dynamics. Um, there's a tremendous amount of jobs in the world today that are um, worse than useless, L worse than meaningful, but are sort of soul sucking. And um, he, he does a whole taxonomy of them that, that, that um, like according the, the bigger point there is that, yeah. <laughs> um, well, one of his examples of a bullshit job is like goons. A goon is someone who's just there to intimidate the other side. And, um, so like, you know, the, the, the sort of mafia scene of this is that like the mob boss shows up, but he shows up with this huge entourage of guys who are like this. They're not really, they're being paid a salary, you know, just to intimidate whoever he walks up to. And that presumably when he meets another mob boss, the other mob boss has his guys too. And, um, you know, his sort of actual interview example of that was corporate lawyers when these like, you know, shark, you know, banks or big businesses go to try to intimidate each other. They each have sort of their, their big nasty law firms charging them $4,000 a day and they cancel each other out and they know it. 
they know that there's no purpose to them being there except to gouge their client for as much as possible because the other, you know, and then to intimidate each other. These are useless jobs. And his contention was that we've actually rearranged a lot of the money in the world in this weird way that's actually political towards this massive amount of what he calls a kind of feudalism. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's, it's created massive barriers to competition. It's not about innovation. It's about, it's a sort of disguised feudalism where certain classes get the wealth in exchange for certain sort of political um, agreements, implicit political agreements. Um, I kind of agree with that perspective because it, it makes a lot of things make sense that I didn't understand before. It maps very similarly to Eric Weinstein's whole model of the distributed idea suppression complex and this, this huge amount of these paralyzed bureaucracies that seem to oppose innovation in academia and certain chunks of science. Um, I, I, I see UBI as it has a chance of being a bit of a silver bullet to force a lot of these dynamics to at least come out into the open. Um, I, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Um, and I'm just going to leave it with, I, I think we're going to have to pick, pick up another day on dissecting the, the work of, uh, David Graeber and his analysis of the job market. Um, I disagree with a lot of it based on what I've heard. I didn't read the book, so I couldn't give you a full critique of it, but I think this just, I'm just lodging my, my <laughs> disagreement. Uh, but I think that um, given all the other fund fundamentals we discussed, I think that there certainly is potentially a place for something like UBI in the world, but I think it, it is, it is something that is, is a, is dangerous. And the fact that it's dangerous doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means you need to be careful of the danger. And so what I, the first time you and I talked about UBI is probably going back two years now. And I, and my view on it hasn't much changed. It's that in theory, I, in theory, I agree with the notion of UBI and that it will be a necessity and is increasingly a necessity in our world. But in practice, I don't trust government and specifically the current governmental structure to implement anything that's going to make it better uh, and that it will work. So well, there was a caveat. And so there. therefore, the current governmental structure, sure, yeah. I, I can't imagine that very many sane humans who would defend either in Israel or in America or in Western Europe. Uh, there's very few humans who would defend the current governmental structure as actually rational or productive of good, of good results or able to implement anything intelligent. So uh, I, I will concede that point. And so therefore I, I oppose it. It's like, you know, when, when people ask me about my, my pop, my personal politics, like I, I, I have a lot, of you know elements of anarchy and libertarianism and a little bit of conservatism. I'm a bit of a mutt, but I almost always vote Republican. And the reason is because all of my general understanding of the world and politics leads me to believe that the government isn't going to fix anything or make it better. I don't think I don't think the Democrats are doing it correctly, and so therefore I'm just going to vote for the party that purports to tax me less. And so therefore, it's just, it's just, it's just a personal bias of mine. It's just that at the end of the day, until the, until the adults start to show up and show us that they're adults and are going to be good stewards of our wealth. And let's not be, let's not be, let's be honest. I'm not, and I'm not talking about necessarily specific, but it's like the government doesn't have any money. All the government's money comes from people. 
comes from taxpayers, it comes from the citizenry. And so when I say be good stewards of our wealth, what I mean is they're collecting taxes. What are they doing with those taxes? How are they actually increasing good in the world? How are they being good stewards of wealth? They're not. And so until they stand up and be adults, I'm just going to elect to give them as little as possible. I may be, you may be able to convince me that I would be happy to give a larger proportion of my tax, of my, of my income to, to fund social and societal good. If, if the current, you know, if, if the government were showing that they were going to be good stewards of that. And I think there are examples of that in the world that come up over and over and over again, like places where, where, where marginal tax rates are substantially higher than they are in the U.S., but the level of service the government provides leaves people feeling okay with that. I mean, I think, you know, notable example would be Sweden. Now, I don't know whether that's doable here or not, but it doesn't matter because we're not even on the right, we're not even on the right train to think about getting there. And so having proposals from one side or the other that say, oh, let's just go be Sweden, um, it's not even, I, I believe not even close. Arnie advocated Denmark, but yeah, point taken. No, no, no. And, and, and look, that was a very elegant description of, you know, the rationale of a lot of people to vote Republican, I think. And that, that was pretty fair. Was that like, even if it was the greatest idea in the world, you don't trust a Democrat run government or just the whole. Yeah, you no, know, no, no, it's not Democrat, Republican. I don't trust Republican run government to fix shit either. Let's be, let's be frank. I, I literally, it's, it's a one issue thing. It's tax me less. I'm going to give you less money. I'm going to withhold as much of my treasure as I can because I don't believe that any of you are acting in the public good at the end of the day. And since you're not actually yeah, actively you, working to solve something, then I'm going to opt for whoever is going to take less of my money. Right, right, given the current American system. You're, you're saying, in theory, if it was a wildly different system where you really felt like you were getting your bang for your buck, like more like Sweden, you would at least entertain the notion. But given the what you know about the dysfunction of the American government, regardless of party, um, you... you, you you're you're only you know you're ultimately your only parameter for what to choose of this stupid binary is to choose whichever party is going to tax you a little less because that's the only real power that you feel like you have well yes but also once again i i, it's, I don't think it's a, even a specific like i don't think you have to get all the way to sweden to change my mind that makes sense you just have to right. the, the, the government has to stand up and, and start being adults Right. And stop being this, you know, dividing force in our country of the red team, blue team and start working together to figure out how to solve problems. And like one thing that I like caught my eye and I think we might have discussed it on a previous live stream was this, you know, when, you know, when during the whole GameStop phenomenon. Right. And AOC tweets something about how horrible it is that, you know, the little guy is kind of excluded from the markets. I don't remember the specific example. And Ted Cruz agreed with him. Right. And so I was like, right. wow, that's right. a wonderful moment of kind of, hey, let's get together on this. And instead, um, and it just happens to be AOC in this case, but I'm not I'm not blaming one side over the other. Uh, AOC comes back and says, well, you know, you are blah blah evil over blah blah blah. And I can never work on anything with you. And it's like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty big missed opportunity. I mean come um, on. I mean, like, like if, if you're really here to be an agent for change, then you're going to work with whoever the change agents are. And it doesn't matter what party, what color jersey they're wearing. Um, and that's and that's really kind of sad. And 
until that stops happening, I'm certainly not changing my my specific voter preferences um, because once again, like if they can't even figure out how to get together on something they agree on, then I can't even I can't even fathom electing. Yeah, more money. I, I agree with that. There was one other thing that just popped out for me about you know because this whole thing started with a so-called child well a children's <laughs> an initiative to end child poverty, right? Mm-hmm. But it goes in line with the UBI or or a China style providing low wage, you know, street sweeping jobs to everybody or whatever, whatever it is. It, the opportunity with children to me is less about making sure the parents have enough money. God knows what the parents are going to do with the money. Not that the government should tell them what to do with the money. But e- either way, it sounds like a potentially hazardous idea. But the more important thing is what are we educating our children to be? What are we raising up our children to be? Culturally, you know, it, the French and the Japanese still have at least a degree of training people culturally to be more resilient with cold weather. That if there's a massive power outage in France, most people have a wood-burning stove or they know where a nearby one is that they can go to and they're used to it and they have sweaters and they're, they're prepared for their indoors to not be as warm as in the summer. And... Uh, you know, a, a deeper degree of that is how do you train children from a young age to actually think for themselves, to think entrepreneurially, to actually innovate instead of conforming to a million standardized, t- I mean, standardized tests are standardized. That's what it means, right? Yeah, I mean, you sort of wind up with cookie cutter children. Do the children feel a sense of civic responsibility? I mean, that's the other huge danger I see in the American um, self-destructiveness lately is that at least at least up until 1990, we had an external enemy, and it was like, no matter how much Republicans and Democrats could bitch at each other in the in the in the you know 60s and 70s when there was some 50s, even when there's pretty intense partisan strife, but everybody knew we were you know had a boogeyman out there. We knew Stalin had killed millions of people. We knew that like we had to at least unite to fight the Russians. And like I, I read a great sort of takedown of the movie Stripes, if you ever saw that. Uh, the Bill Murray movie, where it was like, this is how liberals think we should fight the Russians. We should still fight the Russians. We should just do it with a lot more fun and silliness and anti-establishment, anti-authority attitude. But it was like, it was still, you know, fighting the Russians. So when we lost that external enemy, we started turning on each other. And like, it feels more and more like to be a good citizen for a Democrat means hating Trump voters. And to be a good citizen for Trump voters feels like, I don't even know what, but something that's not about uniting to face the communist, the Chinese communist threat. Um, I, I can't tell you how many conversations with people I've had since being in China where they just dismiss everything out of China. It's like out of sight, out of mind, except for all the clothes I'm wearing and all my appliances and all of the things in my life are actually made in China. But I don't want to think about that. <laughs> um, I think education, civics, um, and all of those that jazz, I think, are excellent um, future topics for us to explore. Um, I don't think that we can dive into any one of them, given kind of the time where we're at. Um, any final thoughts on the on the child UBI or the overall UBI before we kind of wrap? Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the essence of that is my, my more core idea is like, what is actual child welfare? Is it, it uh, you know, is it making sure 
the children's parents have $3,400 a year or whatever that is? Or is it making sure children actually have uh, meaning and purpose and at least one adult who loves them unconditionally? And, you know, what are sort of the essential minimum pieces for a child to grow up and be okay by the time they're age 18, uh, much less be self-sufficient in the world to go out whether it's to get a job or build a family or be uh, an informed citizen um, and be part of the sovereign United States, or I don't know what that that's my hope is that it sparks a discussion that's beyond just a, a payout. Yeah. Um, it probably won't, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> at a minimum, I think if it goes through, hopefully at least you'll see a reduction in, um, food insecurity and other such things uh, among childhood in the United States. I don't have a huge amount of confidence that it will, but time will tell. Um, and I think that, that that's kind of that. Um, unless you have something else to say, I'm going to wrap us up here. Um, please uh, consider purchasing our book. Um, as you can tell, Matthew and I don't really agree on everything, although the more we talk, the more we can find common ground to agree upon. Um, it was our discovery that not that we were not using the same words in the same way that led us to realize that a lot of the problems in our society is a lack of nuanced conversation, like the one we just had here over the last hour and a half. And that led us to write this book. I do not think that word means what you think it means, a short handbook of misunderstanding in which we do our best to kind of in a lighthearted and funny way, illustrate that words don't necessarily mean what, the other person is saying or you think the other person is saying when they say them. And so uh, we highly recommend it um, for anybody who's interested in, you know, a bit of lighthearted fun uh, and kind of deep exploring deeper areas of nuance. And that I think is all. Yeah. It's potentially a peacekeeping gift in the uh, post Trump era. If you have any, anyone in your extended family and friends, or maybe that you unfriended, this might be a way to, to build back into a conversation and relationship with them. This is a great, great book to open that, reopen that door. We hope. And uh, with that, have a wonderful day or night as the case may be. And uh, we'll be on next week.